National Trust magazine, Autumn 2023. Hello and welcome to the Autumn issue of National Trust magazine. I'm Sally Palmer, editor of the magazine, and I'll be taking you through some of the highlights, including news, features and events to enjoy this season. My favourite quote of this issue comes from Tradiga's house manager, Emily Price, who says, We've had a werewolf chasing Queen Victoria down the corridor, been broken into by the doctor and a 17th century highwayman, hosted a 1920s murder mystery featuring Agatha Christie, and had an alien immortality gate in the basement. She's talking about the BBC hit show Doctor Who, which has been filmed at Tradiga House near Newport 13 times. As the show celebrates its 60th anniversary, take a trip through time with us and discover how Tredega and other trust places have starred as locations as varied as ancient Greece, the Himalayas and new New York five billion years in the future. Elsewhere this issue, the Changing Chalk Project is restoring rare grassland and bringing communities together on the South Downs. TV architect George Clark and trust curator Liz Green discuss a shared love of historic buildings and member Malcolm Smith shares how he uses his wood-turning skills to support his local trust place, Sizer, in Cumbria. Here's Shelley Conn, Glenn McCready and Akia Henry to tell you about what's been happening around the trust. Horticultural Gem Saved The home and garden of pioneering plantswoman, designer and author Gertrude Jekyll 1843 to 1932, has been saved for the nation after the trust acquired them in June. Munstead Wood, near Godalming in Surrey, is an internationally important garden which was the hub of Jekyll's garden design business and plant nursery, and the inspiration for her many books and articles. It was here that she developed her signature naturalistic planting schemes using bold, painterly colour, which still influence garden design to this day. The garden was also the birthplace of Jekyll's rich collaborative relationship with architect Sir Edwin Lutyens, who designed the Grade One-listed Arts and Crafts House at the heart of the garden. Together, they created over 100 gardens, including at Lindisfarne Castle in Northumberland. Andy Jasper, the Trust's head of gardens, says, there is no greater example of a classic English garden than Munstead Wood. It has literally changed the face of horticulture not just in the UK, but around the world. The Trust is working on plans to restore Munstead Wood and reopen it to visitors. For updates and how to donate, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash munstead-wood-project. People's Plan for Nature The People's Plan for Nature, a vision for the future of nature, has been launched with input from thousands of UK citizens and convened by the National Trust, WWF and RSPB, the plan was shaped by more than 100 people with different backgrounds, values and experiences. It calls for urgent action to protect nature, including recommendations on nature-friendly farming, river restoration and access to nature. Rope Bridge Restrung We've rebuilt the famous Carricka Reed rope bridge in County Antrim to make it safer to cross, and it is now open for visitors all year round. In the past, the bridge had to be taken down in winter for structural maintenance and was rehung each spring. 
The bridge connects the mainland to the island of Karakarid by spanning a 20-metre or 66-foot-wide chasm. To cross the bridge, pre-book at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Carrick dash a dash read. Haven for Hazel Dormice This summer, 38 rare hazel dormice were released in woodland near Cork Abbey in Derbyshire. Once a common feature of our woodlands, these tiny mammals are now considered extinct in 17 English counties. The dormice are being reintroduced as part of a conservation programme led by People's Trust for Endangered Species, working with the National Trust and other partners. The native woodland should provide the dormice with an ideal home. AGM. Your vote matters. The National Trust is for everyone. That's why, as one of our supporters, you can share your views about how we care for nature, beauty and history and have your say about what matters most to you by casting your vote at the next AGM on the members' resolutions. Your votes can and do directly influence how the Trust operates and they help to guide our future strategy. This year's AGM takes place on the 11th of November 2023 at STEAM, Museum of the Great Western Railway in Swindon, and online. Find out about what the Trust has achieved in the last year, thanks to your support, and our plans for the future. You'll also hear from Director-General Hilary McGrady and other speakers, and have the chance to take part in a Q&A session. You don't need to attend the AGM in order to vote. You'll find your voting papers in the booklet that came with this issue of the magazine. It also includes all the members' resolutions and our trustees' opinions in favour or against each one, and an introduction to the candidates standing for election to the council. You can vote either online or by post. You can vote on resolutions during the AGM, but to cast your vote for candidates to join the council, you'll need to vote in advance by 11.59pm on Friday the 3rd of November. Find out more and register your interest in attending at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash AGM. Going digital. Many of you have told us that you'd like to have the option of reading your National Trust magazine digitally as well as in print. This year, we trialled two different digital versions. Thank you to everyone who took the time to give us your feedback. We're assessing the results and we'll share an update with you soon. And those were some of the highlights from the Autumn 2023 News. Our next feature is from the Director-General. Your chance to hear from Hilary McGrady. Reading through the features for this edition, I was struck by how many of the articles, each in their own way, showed the Trust's work to serve more people and provide benefit to the whole nation. That idea of serving everyone is at the heart of our charitable purpose, and you can see the way it plays out here in lots of different ways, from improving physical access to sharing the stories of our places far and wide through books and film. Making sure the Trust is there for everyone isn't just about opening our doors. It's about removing all the barriers that get in the way of people feeling welcome at our places, both the physical and the invisible. The place that comes to my mind as a good example is a trust site that's close to me in Northern Ireland. 
Divis and the Black Mountain in County Antrim. This mountain forms the backdrop to the city of Belfast. From the top, you can see brilliant views across the city. And while it can be a little windswept, it's the perfect place to get close to nature. Divis came into the trust care in 2005. It had previously been out of bounds for locals, having been used by the Ministry of Defence as both a training ground and a communications base since the 1950s. After 50 years of inaccessibility, opening Divis up for everyone to enjoy seems like it should have been as simple as removing the no-access signs and letting people in, but there were far more barriers to overcome. They begin with how you get there. Divis is only 7 miles or 11 kilometres from the centre of Belfast, yet it's hard to travel there if you don't have a car. We're working to improve public transport to the area, as well as making other routes from different parts of the city. Once you get to the mountain, there's a range of path choices, including one accessible path, but we want to introduce more options. We'd like to cater both for the hikers and adventurers, and also for those less confident of being in a wild place. Getting the facilities right to suit everyone's needs is vital too. There is an accessible changing place toilet near the cafe, which makes Divis welcoming for people with particular needs. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, it's also about the feeling of being welcome. That this is a place for someone like you, whatever your background. Those invisible barriers are often the hardest but our teams are working to break them down, hosting different events and working with the local community. Divis is, of course, just one example. All across the country, we're making it easier for everyone to enjoy our places. These improvements range from ramps and hearing loops to more specialised equipment. Travel further up the Northern Irish coast and you'll find Port Stewart Strand, which is the National Trust's first fully accessible beach with new beach wheelchairs and other accessible equipment. Each of our places has its own context and landscape, and we still have some way to go. But places like Divis show both the challenges and great opportunities we have to make sure the special places we look after truly serve the whole nation. It's your support that makes that work possible. Thank you. Thank you, Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director-General. Through space and time, it's 60 years since the Doctor first stepped out of the TARDIS and onto our screens. In this feature, written by magazine assistant editor Imi Tinkler and read by Glenn McCready, we take a trip back in time to find out how trust places have helped to create the Doctor Who universe. If you could travel to any point in time and space, where and when would it be? Perhaps you'd watch the first Olympic Games in ancient Greece, or take painting lessons from Michelangelo, or maybe even venture into the future. If you're a Doctor Who fan, however, you might want to turn the dials on your TARDIS to May 2023 and set a course for Tredegar House near Newport. Upon arrival, you could be forgiven for wondering if you've overshot by 200 years, what with all the people milling around in Regency-era breeches and ball gowns. But you'll soon encounter the distinctly 21st-century Doctor Who production crew hard at work checking cables, adjusting lighting rigs and moving cameras to get the best angle. 
and somewhere in among the throng, you might even spot the newest Time Lord himself, actor Nshuti Gatwa. As time travel isn't yet possible except on a quantum scale, you'll have to wait until next year to fully appreciate Tredega's starring role in the new season of Doctor Who. In the meantime, fans can look forward to the show's 60th anniversary, which the BBC is celebrating with three special episodes that will air in November, featuring the return of David Tennant and Catherine Tate as The Doctor and Donna Noble. Tredega's no stranger to hosting The Doctor. It feels like turning back the clock for house manager Emily Price, who started at Tredega in 2005, just a few months before the BBC crew arrived to film David Tennant's first series as the Tenth Doctor. She recalls, When they were filming the episode called Tooth and Claw, they brought in a lot of books and set dressing to make the Victorian dining room look like a library. As house manager, I'm responsible for looking after Tredega's collections and the fabric of the building. It was hard to keep track of what belonged to the house and what had been brought in by the crew. These days, such challenges are routine for Emily, as the recent filming marked the Doctor's 11th visit and the show's 13th to Tredega in 18 years. The 10th Doctor still holds the record for the most episodes filmed here, although each of his successive incarnations has been at least once. Tredega wasn't the first trust place to host the Time Lord. That honour goes to Frensham Little Pond in Surrey, which served as the landscape around the ancient city of Troy for the 1965 Doctor Who serial The Myth Makers, just two years after the show first appeared on our screens. In the sixty years since, at least eleven trust places have featured in the show, ranging from seventeenth-century mansions and medieval castles to coastline, countryside, and even the occasional quarry. Executive producer Phil Collinson worked on the first four series of the Doctor Who revival, when the show was relaunched in 2005 after a sixteen-year hiatus and has now returned for the 60th anniversary specials and new season of the show. He says, Making a TV show doesn't get much more complicated than Doctor Who, because you can be millions of years into the future one week, and then back in 1834 the next. It's tricky for the whole crew, but especially the set designers and locations team. Locations manager Ewan Roberts is more than up to the challenge, Having worked on the show since 2010, he's well-versed in finding the perfect locations to represent the infinite variety of the Doctor Who universe. He says, Sometimes we need a period property. Sometimes it's supposed to be something more modern or out in the countryside or on a completely different planet. One reason that we film at National Trust places so often is that they're really versatile. Obviously, the houses and unspoiled landscapes tend to work well for historical episodes, but with a bit of extra set design or CGI, they can often provide settings for the more contemporary or sci-fi storylines too. One such transformation happened at Rossilli Bay on the Gower Peninsula, where David Tennant and Billy Piper, as his first companion Rose, filmed some very windswept scenes on the cliffs 
Above the Beach for the New Earth episode, 2006. According to the script, they were supposed to be looking out over New New York Hospital in the year 5,023, but in reality, the futuristic building and associated spaceships were added in later by the visual effects team. In other cases, Trust Places saved the doctor and the production crew from digging out their passports and helped their carbon footprint by standing in for far-flung locations. The Abominable Snowmen, 1967, proved that whales can rival the Himalayas when the Nant Frankon Valley in Eruri, Snowdonia, stood in as Tibet, complete with several actors running up and down the mountainside in fluffy Yeti costumes. Winspit Quarry in Dorset went even further, transporting viewers to another galaxy as the Daleks' home planet, Skaro, in Destiny of the Daleks, 1979. More recently, Dufferin Gardens in the Vale of Glamorgan joined Tredegar in doubling as the Palace of Versailles for the Tenth Doctor's fourth episode, The Girl in the Fireplace, 2006. Tredegar itself has proved very adaptable over the years, which may explain why it's Doctor Who's go-to trust location. Emily says... We've had a werewolf chasing Queen Victoria down the corridor, been broken into by the doctor and a 17th-century highwayman, hosted a 1920s murder mystery featuring Agatha Christie, and had an alien immortality gate in the basement. You never quite know what's coming next. She continues, The production crew are a really creative bunch, so sometimes they'll tell us what they want to film and we'll wonder how are we possibly going to manage that. But usually it just takes a bit of back and forth to find a solution that works for the filming while making sure that the house and contents are looked after. Emily enjoys the fact that many of the crew have worked on Doctor Who for years and filmed at Tredegar several times. She says, A lot of them know the place really well. They're very respectful of the fact that they're working in a historic setting, and we often hear them reminding each other of areas where they need to be particularly careful. It's lovely that they're looking out for Tredegar just like we are. The first stage of filming often involves moving furniture and collection items, either to make room for set dressing or to ensure fragile objects are kept out of the way of any sonic blasters or temporal shifts. Emily says... We have some wonderful volunteers with special collections handling training, so they're a huge help when we need to clear rooms. We also check all the props the crew bring in to make sure that we're not introducing pests or anything else that could damage the house or the collection. For more complex film requests, the property team often go to specialists for advice. Emily says, For the most recent filming, the crew wanted to use a camera dolly a wheeled cart on rails, so they could get a smooth shot while moving the camera along the panelled corridor upstairs. It's a very heavy piece of kit, so we were concerned about weight load. We brought in one of the Trust's building surveyors, who was able to check the floor and give us some advice on how to manage that part of the shoot safely. The production crew might also bring in specialist filming conservators, to support the crew and the house team in finding solutions for situations 
where filming and conservation don't naturally align. During this year's filming at Tredegar, for instance, the crew were keen to use haze, a mist-like substance which can be sprayed into the air to diffuse light and create an atmospheric look on camera, outside the house. Emily says, We never allow haze inside because it can leave a sticky coating on surfaces, and even when it's used outside, we need to make sure it doesn't seep in through the windows. One of the filming conservators was able to advise how far away from the house the haze needed to be, and also recommended that the crew use oil-based rather than glycol-based haze because it's biodegradable and there's less risk of ground contamination. In the end, the crew were able to get their shot, and the house stayed haze-free. While getting Tredegar ready for filming takes a lot more work than simply hopping into the TARDIS, there are benefits for Tredega too, such as the location fees, which go into looking after the estate and the collection. The show also helps bring Tredega to a wider audience, who might not otherwise hear about the estate or its wild and eccentric past. Emily says, We do get a lot of Doctor Who fans coming to see where the filming happened, which is lovely. Sometimes we'll spot someone wearing a long stripy scarf or a bow tie. Also, hosting Doctor Who means that people who can't visit us in person can still see Tredegar on screen, even if the end result can look very different sometimes. Just as the Tredegar team are responsible for looking after part of history, the production team have their own cultural icon to take care of. Executive producer Phil says it's a huge privilege to work on Doctor Who, but also slightly terrifying. He says... Generations of children have grown up watching the show, and it holds a special place in many people's hearts. It's a piece of our national heritage, really. I remember saying when we started work on the first revival series in 2004 that it felt like being asked to run the National Trust. Every time the Doctor regenerates, the new actor brings something fresh and exciting to the role. I hope that 60 years from now there'll be a new generation getting to know their doctor. It seems unlikely the Time Lord will be hanging up the old sonic screwdriver anytime soon, and with so many worlds and time periods still to be explored, the crew are always on the lookout for potential locations. Ewan says, There's no doubt that we're going to need trust places for filming in the future. I'd love to take the Doctor up to North Wales, as that's where I'm from. I filmed at Penryn Castle in Gwynedd for another project about twenty years ago, and I'm always looking for an excuse to go back. Fortunately, as Phil observes, trust places will be ready and waiting to welcome the Doctor for many years to come. He says, in our second revival episode, The End of the World, we were careful to establish that the trust will still be going five billion years from now. So hopefully, you'll still be providing locations for Doctor Who as well. Before we allons-y, as the Tenth Doctor would have said, here's a short trip through the Doctor Who universe in this Time Lord timeline of six trust places. 1981, Powys Castle in Powys. Powys Castle featured in the 1981 Doctor Who serial, Warrior's Gate, representing a portal between universes. Director Paul Joyce visited and took monochrome photos. 
then video footage of the fourth Doctor Tom Baker and other actors was added later. 1983. Bodium Castle in East Sussex. Often described as a quintessential English castle, Bodium was an obvious choice for the King's Demons in 1983, featuring King John of Magna Carta fame and returned as the exterior of Nottingham Castle in Robot of Sherwood in 2014. 2006. Dufferin Gardens in the Vale of Glamorgan. The Dufferin Estate has featured in eight episodes of Doctor Who since 2006. The house interiors are often filmed, as well as the gardens, which stood in as a virtual reality heaven in Deep Breath 2014. 2011. Durham Park in South Gloucestershire. Durham Park was turned into a spooky doll's house for the 2011 episode Night Terrace. Companions Amy and Rory are chased by life-size peg dolls until the 11th Doctor comes to the rescue. 2013. Tintsfield in North Somerset. Hyde, in 2013, was the work of Luther creator Neil Cross, who was keen to write a classic haunted house mystery for Doctor Who. Tintsfield's gothic grandeur proved to be the ideal mood setter, with interiors filmed over three days. 2020. Blindlin Farm in Banai Brechnig, Brecon Beacons. Blindlin Farm stood in for rural Ireland during the opening scenes of Ascension of the Cybermen 2020, in which a young farming couple find an abandoned baby and raise him as their own. Doctor Who will air on BBC One from November. Find out more at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash doctor who. The ancient chalk grassland of the South Downs is home to plants and wildlife found in only a few places in the UK, but they're under threat. With partners and the local community, the Trust is leading a project to protect them for the future and open them up for more people to enjoy. Magazine assistant editor Helen Beer went to meet them and find out how they're working together to protect these rare plants and wildlife. It's read by Shelley Conn. Something special is happening on Southwark Hill. A dainty pink pyramidal orchid is peeping out from the grasses of the West Sussex hillside, turning its face to the sky and basking in the June sunshine. Chalk grassland rich in orchids like this one once covered swathes of the South Downs. Over the years, the orchids have quietly disappeared along with their habitat. Just a year ago, this part of Southwark Hill was overrun by thick scrubs stifling the grassland. The orchid's reappearance is an early sign of hope for the work of Changing Chalk, an ambitious project led by the Trust. With partners and local communities, Changing Chalk has been set up to restore the ancient chalk grassland of the eastern South Downs and help local people get out to enjoy and care for it for themselves before it's too late. The orchid is bringing great joy to Chalk Life Ranger Kim Greaves. With a dedicated group of volunteers, he cleared this area last autumn in the hope that orchids and other grassland species would thrive. He says, early signs of recovery like this offer a hint as to what might be possible if we can manage the grassland well. Orchids have a bulb-like tuberous root and can survive for a long time under scrub, biding their time until something opens up the area and lets the light in.
We've seen it happen at other trust places too. Rangers have reclaimed areas of chalk grassland from dense scrub like this, and a decade later, there's an amazing array of orchids. Kim and his volunteers are out again today in the sunshine on Southwark Hill near Port Slade, an urban area on the edge of Brighton and Hove. Kim runs fortnightly sessions for the group, which ranges from members of the local community to ecology students looking for practical conservation experience. Today, they're clearing scrub and surveying the grassland to check its condition. Kim explains, Much of the South Downs used to be wooded. When humans began grazing livestock on the Downs around 6,000 years ago, they cleared large areas and chalk grassland spread across the landscape. The resulting tapestry of chalk downland is rich in nature. Chalk grassland is one of Western Europe's most biodiverse habitats, supporting as many as 40 plant species in a square metre. Kim says, At the right time of year, you're surrounded by calling crickets and grasshoppers. You might have a cloud of chalk hill blue butterflies erupting at your feet, or skylarks singing above your head. Once you attune your senses to the subtleties of chalk grassland, you can see how unique it is. Since then, humans have continued to shape the landscape. There are around 227 scheduled ancient monuments in the changing chalk area. Ranging from the remains of Bronze Age settlements and burial grounds to agriculture and even the remains of a Victorian funfair on an Iron Age hill fort. But intensive farming after the Second World War removed much of the grassland and today it covers just 4% of the South Downs. What survives exists in the margins, vulnerable to the ever-encroaching scrub. It's not that scrub itself is necessarily bad. Kim says, scrub is an important part of the landscape here for birds, reptiles, bees and butterflies. We don't want to get rid of all the scrub. We want to restore the delicate balance between it and the ancient chalk grassland. Many chalk grassland species are entirely dependent upon the rare convergence of geology, topography, ecology and human influence here. Grazing animals help maintain that balance, and the long-term decline of pastoral farming on the downs is one of our biggest challenges. The Changing Chalk Partnership is working with local farmers and creating conservation grazing hubs to help address this. The four-year Changing Chalk project began last year and is funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Players of People's Postcode Lottery, and the Linbury Trust. It covers a 458 square kilometre, or 177 square mile stretch of the South Downs between Eastbourne and Shoreham, that includes the trust beauty spot of Devil's Dyke, a golf course turned nature reserve on the outskirts of Brighton, and even some vineyards that are using more wildlife-friendly practices in grape cultivation. The Trust is working alongside 12 partners to bring Changing Chalk's vision to life. Besides the restoration work, that vision includes helping more local people to get out onto the downs and fall in love with them. Project manager Sam Page says, If this landscape is going to have a future, it's vital for local people to feel that it's theirs to enjoy and want to play a part in looking after it. A surprising number of people living in the towns on the edge of the downs have never visited, we want to help change that. Part of the community work includes creating a new travelling hub in the form of a van that will move around the downs, 
almost like a mobile mini visitor centre, towing off-road mobility vehicles for those who need them. The Changing Chalk team is testing which vehicles will function best on the hilly terrain and which routes are most suitable. Sam says, once testing is finished, the vehicles will be available for people to book for free. Ecotherapy sessions are also being held on the downs as a way of helping improve mental health through outdoor therapeutic activities. Vicky has lived in Brighton her whole life, but exploring the South Downs wasn't something she'd considered until she joined Growing New Roots, an ecotherapy group run by the Brighton & Hove Food Partnership. She says, I had two decades of issues with my mental health, and sometimes I could go three weeks without wanting to step outside. I was nervous going to the first group, but we all just clicked, and we did such interesting things. Now I've become a bit obsessed with local history and geology, and I've bought books about the flowers that you can find on the downs. If I'm stressed, I can dip into those to help bring me some perspective and peace. Vicky is now training to take other people on guided walks, as well as volunteering to help run the next group. She says, The downs are for us all to enjoy and to look after. Anyone can enjoy it because it's our place. Sophia de Leon is 25 and has also been getting out onto the downs for the first time because of a changing chalk initiative. The Countryside Skills Programme helps young people not in employment, education or training to learn skills in countryside management. Sophia, who joined the programme shortly after moving to Brighton from the Philippines, has been working with trust archaeologists, learning to measure the area's Bronze Age barrows and other burial sites. She says, I've always been interested in archaeology, and the programme has taught me a lot about the way it ties into how the trust looks after the South Downs. I love how you can see these ancient barrows all over the Downs, so you get a visual story of the UK's past. Having completed the programme, Sophia is helping run the next group, as well as volunteering with the Trust and Historic England to digitally map the South Downs' many ancient monuments using aerial surveys and LIDAR technology. In time, she's hoping it will lead her on to further studies in archaeology at university. Changing Chalk is bringing together hundreds of people like Vicky and Sophia, who are discovering a love for the South Downs and a desire to look after them for the long term. Over time, Kim says, the initiative will inspire thousands more people to help shape and influence their future, finding joy along the way, just as humans have done here for thousands of years. He's full of renewed hope for the ancient landscape. He says, it took generations to create this place, and it may take many more to fully restore it. But if we all work together, just imagine what we're capable of achieving over the next century. The four-year Changing Chalk programme has been made possible thanks to a generous National Lottery Heritage Fund grant of £2.23 million, Players of People's Postcode Lottery and the Lindbury Trust. We're also working in partnership with many other organisations, charities and local councils. Thank you all. And here are some more rare and precious UK landscapes for you to enjoy. Derwent in Cumbria. The area around the River Derwent is home to otters, Atlantic salmon and the vendes, the UK's rarest freshwater fish. We're working to slow the river's flow by restoring peatland, planting trees and creating ponds to make the landscape more resilient to droughts and flooding. 
Eruri, or Snowdonia, in North Wales. Eruri's temperate rainforest is a precious fragment where rare mosses, liverworts and lichens thrive, many of which are only found in Wales. The Trust is planting native saplings suited to this unusual habitat to reconnect different areas of woodland. Kinder, Edale and the High Peak in Derbyshire Rangers have been restoring the high moorland by planting sphagnum moss to prevent peat bogs from drying out. Water levels have risen and vegetation is increasing on areas of bare peat, providing homes for insects and birds. Murloc National Nature Reserve in County Down Murloc's 6,000-year-old sand dunes are home to 620 species of butterfly and moth and many wintering wildfowl and waders. Trust teams have been clearing invasive sea buckthorn, which smothers native sand dune species. Wiccan Fen in Cambridgeshire Wiccan Fen supports more than 9,000 species of plants, birds and insects. With help from grazing with conic ponies and cattle, rangers are creating a 52-square-kilometre, or 20-square-mile, nature reserve, stretching from the oldest part of the Fen to Cambridge. To mark the publication of the new book, 60 Remarkable Buildings of the National Trust, architect and presenter George Clark met author and curator Liz Green at Laycock in Wiltshire to discuss their shared passion for history, architectural top trumps and their favourite trust building. So Liz, here we are at Laycock, which is incredibly beautiful. This made it into your beautiful book of 60 Remarkable Buildings. Why this one? Well, if you had to pick a cloister... This is the best. It's just, it's just reaching up. It makes you look heavenwards and it's inspiring. You know, it was in the 13th century a place full of nuns. Um, and then it's been changed and layered up and it's become a private house. But it's kept that kind of sense of tranquility and a really special sort of atmosphere about it. So, actually, just tell me about the 60 buildings. How did you even manage to select 60 buildings out of the hundreds and hundreds you could have chosen from? The, the task was to try and sort of represent the, the wide variety of buildings that, that the Trust has in our care. So everything from Suter Lighthouse to Laycock's Cloisters through to Knoll, which is the most incredible, the Bishop's Palace. So, I still yeah. don't know how you came up with that 60. Mm. It must have been really it tough. It started as a really, really long list. So there was a whole kind of brain splurge of architecture that, that lasted for quite a long time. And, and we probably had almost 200 actually different sorts of buildings of different functions. Um, and then had to have a kind of top trumps, right, which is the best orangery. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, this one gets in because it's got a really cool iron frame. Yeah, but this one is a bit older. Um, I mean, I also wanted to show geographical spread because you know, types of buildings vary so wildly across you know, the three nations. So we've got you know, places in Northern Ireland, places across England and places in Wales. And interestingly, it's a slight aside, but it's really relevant, um, the book is going to be published in Welsh as well as English. Nearly everything you put in I loved, but I think Seton Delaville was one that you put in. You know, John Vanbro was an architect that I studied a lot when I was at university. It's a good northern building. It's, it was on my doorstep. That was a no-brainer. One, one of the things I started off with, with a really, really long list, was, was a no-brainers list, and Seton was on, on there. I think yeah. it's just... I mean, Van Brett is so distinctive, isn't he? You can, you can pick him out from, from you know, 100 
you know, buildings of the same sort of period. And it's yeah, just... and there's, and I think Stour Head was one mm. that you picked for the book. That's a no-brainer. Yeah. How can you do a book of yeah. 60 remarkable buildings for the National Trust and not have Stour Head? And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of of Palladio, the Italian architect, mm. and obviously Palladian influences at Stour Head were massive. Yeah. I think it's always fascinating how we see buildings in their condition today, which have obviously been modified and adapted and... Some haven't been restored at all. Yeah. Some might have even been overly restored. But sometimes it's hard to get a picture of what it was like when it was built. It's really hard to imagine, isn't it? But I mean, today with technology, we can start to try and interpret buildings. Because of course, you know, these aren't just sterile spaces. We have thousands of people coming through them. Absolutely. Every year. Yeah. Um, and so for the Trust, there's a really interesting challenge. And for any organisation or individual looking after old buildings, to how, how to balance conservation and the fact that buildings are, you know, they, they wear and with climate change they're wearing in different ways. Balance that with you know, getting lots of people through and still being able to look after the building. Um, we've talked a lot about buildings but let's talk about people mm. and social history mm. because these buildings wouldn't exist if it wasn't for people yeah. and having a need. Yeah. The National Trust have got such diverse stories haven't they? Very. Um, and you think about somewhere perhaps like Quarry Bank um, on the outskirts of Manchester, which is an amazing site because it's, it's a very early mill um, at the core of, of the site. Then you've got the mill owner's house, moderately grand, but right on the site, not somewhere removed in a, you know, in a rarefied environment away from the noise and the, and the busyness of, of milling. He's right there. And then you've got Style Village, which is, which is also just right by the mill, which was this wonderful designed village complete with school and chapels and all the things that people need that make up the, you know, the, the, the mesh of, of a community. It's, it's a, a real contrast to somewhere like, you know, like here at Laycock or Seaton Delaville, because it's, it's a site where families and working people lived. And those houses and that landscape breathe of, of their lives and tell of what it was like to be a child working in a cotton mill. And you have got some very small, humble mm. domestic properties in there as well. Um, Toleathed Vaur down in Pembrokeshire, um, which is just a little, very well, vernacular farmhouse and absolutely designed for the very specific environment in which it sits. So it's designed to withstand the, the wild buffeting that, that Pembrokeshire gets from the sea. And it's, it's, it's hunkered down into its landscape. It's, uh, its construction has a kind of layers of slobbering to hold the roof on and little um, partitions to keep the, the drafts out. Um, and it, yeah, ev those sorts of buildings I find really special because they respond to their landscape. They tell of something, you know, past ways of life. They are made using traditions and skills handed down through, through generations and with materials probably found within less than a mile radius. So we're outside now. In the blazing sunshine, which is yeah, gorgeous. I mean, Isn't it lovely? So I, I kind of, even though this is a peak time, to come and see a National Trust building because you've got beautiful sunshine, leaves on the trees and gorgeously warm. Basically, you should be seeing these buildings any time of year, shouldn't you? To Absolutely. And sometimes the effect that you know, rain has on, a, on, on stone or on slate or on building materials or you know, on, on glass is really, really potent and, and visually quite exciting. So just, just thinking about the very last building that's included in the book because it's the most modern one. It was only finished in 2012. It's the visitor building at Giant's Causeway um, in Northern Ireland. Um, 
and it's an absolutely astonishing structure. And thinking about those different weather conditions, it's a fantastic confection of basalt. So using the same stone that the Giant's Causeway itself is and glass and concrete and grass. So the roof is grass. It's almost it's dipped partially underground because in that huge and really sensitive landscape, um, you have to be so careful and considerate about what you build. Um, and the reason that people are going there is to see the Giant's Causeway. They're not coming here to see a visitor building, although maybe they will now. I think um, Hennigan Peng, who's the architect, um, really thought very, very carefully about how to intrude in that landscape and how to make something that is extremely beautiful. It's also environmentally very clever. Um, so it's sustainable for the future. And I think it's really a really worthy building to include in there alongside the sorts of buildings like the very earliest. Horton Court is a Norman building. So we're talking about over 800 years of, of architecture. And it's great that you've used the Causeway building as an example of, mm. of really the National Trust creating new architecture, yeah. you know, yeah. the architecture of the future. It's not just Absolutely. about historic buildings. And I think it's something that we should do and do with pride, actually, because um, you could have a, a full stop at the point that the Trust acquires or takes places into their care. And, and then almost in a kind of a reverence and sometimes a slightly apologetic approach to new structures. But to make these buildings work, you have to have infra infrastructure, you have to have places where you know, visitors are met, and you have to have loos and cafes and car parks. And the way that we design that infrastructure is, is really, really important. So coming back to your book, mm. I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, OK. Your favourite building of the 60s, which would it be? And that's not to say that the other 59 are not amazing and incredible and remarkable. They're all in there because they're remarkable. They're all in there because they're yeah. brilliant. But okay. if you had a big one. It's so hard. I think I might actually say Orford Ness because what they talk about is the absolutely terrifying nature of the mid 20th century and the Cold War. And it's a kind of really concrete, literally, means of reminding us let's not go back there. And there's something very remarkable happening there because they are built these kind of mass concrete bunkers on this shifting shingle island. And there's something about mortality, I think, because the buildings, they are slowly crumbling and fading. And there's something about that temporiness, but temporiness of the human hand and touch on the landscape, which I think is just embodied there really magically. So I would pick that. What would you pick? I'd go for Seton Delaville. Yeah. John Vanborough. Yeah. It's a gem, and, and it's, it's, in some ways it's a kind of pinnacle of that period of architecture. You can pick up your copy of 60 Remarkable Buildings of the National Trust for £10 at your local properties shop or online at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash shop. This feature is called Everywhere and Nowhere. Wherever there have historically been people, some of them will have been living with disability, the rich stories of their lives often obscured. A new research project seeks to uncover some of their stories and bring their hidden lives into view. It's read by Akia Henry. At its heart, the National Trust is for everyone. Back in 1895, our founders pledged to preserve places of historic interest and natural beauty for the benefit of the nation. 
One of the bedrocks of our mission is to make trust places feel welcoming. And today, this founding principle still touches everything we do. We're always seeking out new ways we can offer our visitors a better welcome, whether that's simply through a warm greeting and an offer of a map when you arrive, or helping you with a more specific need. In recent times, we've invested in easy-to-use pathways for people with wheelchairs or buggies, made sure food in the cafes is well-labelled for those with allergies, and provided Braille, large print or audio guides at many places. Just this year, we've been able to make Runnymede in Surrey, the place where Magna Carta was sealed more than 800 years ago, accessible to people with wheelchairs and other mobility needs. It feels like an important milestone, given Runnymede's numerous memorials to democracy. Magna Carta is still widely seen as a symbol of liberty which enshrined personal freedom and the right to liberty and security in law. Those freedoms, which were aspired to at Runnymede, are now being realised there in real life. The Trust Access and Equality Specialist Heather Smith says, The Trust is for everyone, forever. And it is important that we reflect that in everything we do. As well as continuing to work to improve physical access to our places and making a better all-round experience for our visitors, we must also make sure the stories about people who are connected to trust places are inclusive. That's what Everywhere and Nowhere is all about. Everywhere and Nowhere is a research project exploring little-known and previously untold histories of disability from across trust places and collections. A collaboration between Trust Curators and the University of Leicester's Research Centre for Museums and Galleries, the project was developed with disabled collaborators and experts in disability history. The research it yielded suggests that historic connections to disability are indeed everywhere. Threaded through our heritage buildings and landscapes and the lives, collections and historical records attached to them. But they're also nowhere as we very often know less about the lives of disabled people in the past than we do about non-disabled people. Negative and stigmatising attitudes can mean that archives are partial, and it can be challenging to build a picture of both the lives of disabled people, in their own words, and the social norms and attitudes that shaped their experience. What follows are some of the compelling stories the research has brought to life. A visionary mountaineer, Geoffrey Winthrop Young. 1876 to 1958. Geoffrey Winthrop Young was a celebrated mountaineer and rock climber, as well as a poet, author and educator. He was injured in the First World War, which resulted in one of his legs being amputated. Eager to continue his climbing, Geoffrey designed himself an adaptable prosthetic leg with a number of detachable feet for scaling different types of rock and snow. These included a leather shoe, a rubber pad, and a ski ring fitment to stop his leg plunging into snow. For rock climbing, he used a steel spike studded with nails, which he could fit into nooks and crannies. In a letter to his friend George Mallory in 1917, he described his experiences of climbing after his injury as the immense stimulus of a new start, with every little inch of progress a joy instead of a commonplace. Contemporaries described Geoffrey as a man with intuitive sympathy. He encouraged other war veterans with life-changing injuries to continue the activities they loved. In 1923, 
the Fell and Rock Climbing Club gave 12 mountain summits in the Lake District to the Trust as a war memorial, part of a donation known as the Great Gift. Geoffrey was invited to deliver a dedication speech at the unveiling ceremony on the summit of Great Gable, one of the mountains. It was the longest and toughest climb he had tackled since before the war. When he reached the summit, more than 500 people listened to his tribute in the rain, wind and mist. Reflections Tony Heaton, sculptor, disability rights activist and consultant advisor for Everywhere and Nowhere, says, Geoffrey's story resonates with me because he customised his own prosthetics so he could carry on climbing. When I became a wheelchair user back in 1970, the chairs issued by the NHS were heavy and unwieldy and were designed to push disabled people around in. However, young people like me wanted to self-propel and use lightweight customised chairs so we could get about independently and play sports such as wheelchair basketball. So we hacked our NHS chairs or built what we wanted from scratch. Like Geoffrey, we wanted to return to enjoying our passions in life. We took control, just as he did, by finding practical solutions. Making their mark. Marcus Richard Samuel, 1909-1986, and Courtney Morgan, 1867-1934. At Upton House and Gardens in Warwickshire, Marcus Richard Samuel, 3rd Viscount Beersted, embroidered the upholstery on his dining room chairs as part of his rehabilitation for an injury to his hands sustained during the Second World War. Marcus embroidered 12 chair seat covers with seasonal floral designs. Embroidery was often taught as part of post-war rehabilitation, and it's likely Marcus's designs came from the Royal School of Needlework at Hampton Court. Tredegar House in Newport was Courtney Morgan's home. As his sight diminished, Courtney made adaptations to his home, such as adding handrails inside and outside. He also removed the glass cover from his watch so he could feel its face to tell the time. Courtney and his uncle Godfrey both supported the Cardiff Institute for the Blind and the Newport and Monmouthshire Blind Aid Society, with Godfrey setting up guided visits to the estate for blind visitors. Reflections Angela Stien, museum researcher and disability expert, says, We may be drawn to extraordinary stories and artefacts, but histories of disability are often found in everyday objects. I like the stories of Marcus and Courtney especially because their lived experience is found in mundane objects, a chair and a watch. What if disabled lives are not invisible or missing from history, but perhaps for a while we looked in the wrong places? The more we see that disability has always existed, that it has been entwined in the existence of people and places, the more chance we have of a world where the disabled experience is celebrated rather than erased. Sorrow in Song, Crazy Jane, circa 1800. Killerton, in Devon, holds Lady Lydia Ackland's music collection, which includes the score to a popular song, Crazy Jane. Crazy Jane, along with Mad Bess and Crazy Sally, was a fashionable fictional character in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. 
They all belonged to a genre of music known as compassionate songs. With words written by Matthew Gregory Lewis and music by Harriet Abrams, Crazy Jane tells the story of a heartbroken woman experiencing mental distress. Despite portraying Jane as overly emotional, hysterical and unstable, the lyrics were intended in part to encourage empathy for Jane's situation and urge people not to fear her. Songs like this were part of a wider moral education discourse, written to discourage both men and women from entering into relationships outside of marriage. The contradictory and often stigmatising attitudes towards mental health that the song conveys still resonate today. Reflections Jenny Hunt, disability expert and project coordinator for Everywhere and Nowhere, says, I've experienced periods of mental ill health myself and am neurodivergent. I am very aware of how society can judge people with disabilities and differences, so Crazy Jane resonates with me as it shows how attitudes are both challenged and reinforced by culture. The song has a complex story, Jenny continues. In aiming to prevent stigma, it reinforces stigma of a different kind. But the fact that it does encourage compassion is something I think is still vitally needed today. Though improvement has been made in some ways, I think at times people still can be very quick to judge, especially around mental health conditions. If you'd like to learn more about the newly uncovered stories in the Everywhere and Nowhere project, there's a film available at everywhereandnowhere.le.ac.uk. If you're looking for well-maintained paths suitable for buggies, wheelchairs and those with mobility aids, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash accessible dash walks. An object I love. Assistant National Curator Emile de Brun retraces the steps that led him to a lacquer bureau at Powys Castle in Powys and a lifetime fascination with Chinese and Japanese art. It's read by Glenn McCready. Memory is notoriously unreliable, and each time we remember something, we rewrite it. So I know that my memory of visiting a Japanese bookshop in London in the early 1980s is just a faint trace. But it's important to me, as it was the moment when I first became aware of Japanese woodblock prints. My mother and I had come over from the Netherlands on holiday, and we were staying with my uncle. My grandmother was also there, visiting from New Zealand. We'd seen St Paul's Cathedral, and it was getting dark when we suddenly came upon a bright, modern bookshop filled with Japanese books and books about Japan. I couldn't read Japanese, and Japan was unfamiliar to me, but that made it seem incredibly cool. My grandmother bought two small books about the Japanese artists Hiroshige and Hokusai, giving the former to me while keeping the latter herself. I think she saw it as strengthening the bond between us. But after the holiday, when we were back on different sides of the globe, these twinned little books would be a reminder of our connection. I was fascinated by the exquisite worlds Hiroshige created in his prints, so different from the Western art I was used to. The bold colours, the radical stylization, the strange, 
rightness of a gnarled pine tree jutting through the silhouette of Mount Fuji. It all made a huge impression. My ensuing interest in Japanese prints was one of the factors that led me to study Japanese at university a few years later. The different jobs I've had since then haven't always involved Japanese art, but in my current role I help catalogue and interpret the Japanese and Chinese objects in the Trust's collections. I have also been given the extraordinary opportunity to write a book, Borrowed Landscapes, about the impact of China and Japan on the historic houses and gardens of the National Trust. Some of the Trust's places and collections show the ways Europeans have regarded and interpreted the Middle East and Asia over the last few centuries. Through objects and architecture, we can notice mechanisms such as idealizing, copying, caricaturing, adapting, appropriating, and redefining. Sometimes this involved creating fictional versions of the East, Think of pseudo-Chinese figures on 18th-century European porcelain. Sometimes it was an expression of admiration, like the pagodas placed in English gardens next to other aspirational structures, such as neoclassical pavilions. On other occasions it was about appropriation, as when Asian lacquer was cut up to use as veneer for European furniture. This bureau is one of my favourite pieces of furniture in the Trust's collections. It has a dressing mirror and is one of a pair, probably made in the 1730s or 40s, though we don't know if it was commissioned especially for Powys. At that time, artisans in Guangzhou, sometimes known as Canton, produced particular types of furniture for the Western market, combining elements of Chinese and European design traditions. Those objects seemed exotic to Europeans, but the Chinese cabinet makers too would have regarded them as foreign. Having been constructed in Guangzhou, the bureau with its twin would have been sent on to Japan to be lacquered, reflecting the European esteem for Japanese lacquer craftsmanship but something must have been lost in translation, as the spaces where the mirrors should have gone were lacquered as well, with waterfall scenes. This error was never undone, presumably because the waterfalls were considered too exquisite to remove. I love this object because it is sublimely beautiful and yet reflects the difficulties of human communication. Emil's book, Borrowed Landscapes, China and Japan in the Historic Houses and Gardens of Britain and Ireland, is available to buy from the 12th of October at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash shop. Now it's time to meet Liz Nelstrop. National Walking Lead Liz explains how her role helps people build their confidence and enjoy using the Trust's network of paths and trails. It's read by Akia Henry. I grew up in Cornwall, surrounded by cliffs and family adventures. I love being in nature. It's been a source of joy and solace my whole life. When my children were small, we lived in Naples, close to Italy's Amalfi Coast. I enjoyed walking and exploring the local area with them. We come back and tell everyone, 
Hey, there's this amazing mountain. There's a beautiful shepherd track up in the hills. There weren't any maps or signs and people in the expat community kept asking me where to go. I set up a blog to share my walks, but I found people didn't always feel confident about walking on their own. So I got some training back in the UK and started to lead group walks. I began to feel I had a calling to help people get out and enjoy the outdoors. People would arrive tired and stressed, but by lunchtime, their whole being had changed. They'd really connect with each other and their surroundings. When we moved back to England in 2017, I began working for the Trust, using the skills I'd learnt in Italy and my background in marketing and project management. The Trust has thousands of kilometres of paths and trails. I work on a whole range of projects, from mapping and updating the network to waymarking, using signs to help walkers follow a trail easily, and grading trails. I also make sure the trails work for people with different needs. I help provide guidance and training for staff and volunteers at National Trust Places to set up walks looking at flora and fauna for those wanting to learn more about nature, or walk and talk walks for people who want company on their walks. We also look at ways to promote walking for health and run buggy walks for families. There's work happening to make trails accessible for people who use wheelchairs and trampers, such as removing stiles and widening gateways and giving people information so that they can make decisions about whether a trail is for them. Some of the most exciting work I've done is with people who, for cultural or other reasons, may not traditionally feel comfortable out walking. I work with groups like the Mason Foundation, which supports communities to be active, Muslim Hikers and Proper Blokes Club, which helps men with their mental health. We're also working with other organisations to train 100 people as walk leaders in their communities. I love seeing people get out and enjoy their walks. We have big ambitions for the future. The Trust wants to make group walks available at 200 places by 2025. As a first step, we're training a group of volunteer community walk leaders, supported by Cotswold Outdoors. We're also looking at how digital technology might help people to get more from their walks. It makes me so happy to share my passion for walking and make it easier for others to enjoy it. To find your nearest walker to Trust Place, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash visit forward slash walking. And for accessible walks, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash accessible dash walks. My membership and me. Life member Malcolm Smith uses his wood-turning skills to support his local trust place, Sizer in Cumbria, where he and his wife Hilary are volunteers. We began by asking him why he joined the trust. His words are read by Glenn McCready. I'm originally from Yorkshire, but I joined at Arlington Court when I was on holiday in Devon in 1988. After we got married, my wife Hilary and I became life members. We enjoy visiting gardens the most, but there are also houses like Belton in Lincolnshire which inspire me with their fine wood carvings. I've always liked woodworking, but I didn't try turning, shaping wood using hand-held tools and a lathe, until I inherited my father's lathe when I was 49. When I retired in 2010, I joined the local Red Rose Wood Turning Club, 
where I learnt from other turners and built up my skills. I'm now one of the advanced turners and take part in demonstrations and workshops. I knew I wanted to do something which would give structure to my week after I retired. Sizer is our nearest trust place, so we visited several times. I finished work on a Friday and started volunteering in the garden at Sizer on the Monday. A couple of years later, the team were looking for ideas for events, so I suggested that the woodturning club could come and do a demonstration. We started with just one lathe, but now Turning Week is an annual event where we also demonstrate pyrography, drawing on wood with a hot poker, and fretsaw work, which is cutting designs into wood using a thin blade. After a few demonstrations, Sizer's retail manager asked if we'd like to make some items to sell in the shop, and it's grown from there. Four of us produce items for the shop, from wooden mushrooms, mice and Christmas decorations, to bowls, doorstops, key rings and pens. The wood is all from the Sizer estate. We get prunings and planks from the rangers who manage the trees, and we work with different species, including yew, cherry, ash and sycamore. The thing I love most about my work at Sizer is the creativity, looking at a piece of wood and thinking, what can I make from this? It's a great chance to use my skills. Sizer means a lot to me, so I also like knowing that I'm helping to look after it. So far, we've made more than £21,000 profit, from selling our creations, which goes back into conservation work on the estate. The Red Rose Club members love doing Turning Week too. One or two people decided to join the club after seeing us at Sizer, and a few of our members joined the Trust after doing the demonstrations there, so it's a mutually beneficial relationship. You can pick up a wooden souvenir from Sizer on your next visit. Find out more at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Sizer. That's S-I-Z-E-R-G-H. Before we wrap up this edition, it's time to hear about some of the events going on at National Trust Places this autumn. Please make sure to check individual property webpages, the National Trust app, or call the property for the latest information before you visit. Autumn Adventures from the 20th of October to the 5th of November at Rufford Old Hall in Lancashire, the popular Scarecrow Festival returns with this year's theme of myths, legends and fairy tales. The local community, staff and volunteers are invited to take part in creating scarecrows to be displayed around the garden and woodland for visitors to discover. The 1st of November at Orford Ness in Suffolk is Young Ranger Day. Experience a day in the life of a ranger on Orford Ness. Help sheepdog sweep to check the flock of rare breed sheep, dissect owl pellets to find out what they've been eating, and check the wildlife cameras. For Halloween hijinks, visit Castle Ward in County Down from the 28th to the 29th of October and discover how people marked All Hallows' Eve in the 18th and 19th centuries. Learn about herbal remedies and folklore from the local wise woman and enjoy a carriage ride along Strangford Loch. Celebrate Autumn's Bounty with Apple Week. 
a week of Apple activities from the 21st to the 27th of October at Nostal in West Yorkshire. There's an Apple Family Fun Day on the 22nd of October with apple pressing and an apple trail around the kitchen garden. On the 25th of October, the garden team will share how to identify different types of cooking and eating apple. Or come along on the 26th of October for a guided tour of the orchard and kitchen garden. For awesome autumn colour, visit Felbrig in Norfolk. With its eye-catching foliage and fungi, the great wood at Felbrig is one of Norfolk's seasonal highlights. Venture down tree-lined avenues, where the branches overhead create tunnels of colour, and don't forget to visit the walled garden, which will be full of gourds, squashes and pumpkins ready for harvest celebrations. Experience the magic of Fountains by Floodlight at Fountains Abbey in North Yorkshire after dark as the annual lights display returns. On selected dates in October and November, you can see the ruins lit up against the night sky and hear the voices of local choirs ringing through the solarium. From the 3rd to the 19th of November at Kedleston Hall in Derbyshire, you can celebrate Diwali with light projections in the hall and visit the My Adornment is My Power exhibition by jewellery designer Anisha Palmer, who aims to unlock the untold stories of historic South Asian jewellery in Kedleston's collection. From the 1st of December to the 7th of January, the House Durham Park in South Gloucestershire will be dressed for Christmas through the ages in the style of five different eras, with festive writings by the likes of Samuel Pepys, Jane Austen and Charles Dickens brought to life. All these activities and more are listed at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash what's dash on. So do check to see what's going on in your area this autumn. Well, that's all from us this autumn issue. I hope you've enjoyed it. And do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. The National Trust magazine Autumn 2023 was presented by me, Sally Palmer. The readers in this edition were Shelley Conn, Akia Henry and Glenn McCready. It was produced for National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding, and all items are copyright. If you've listened to this audio edition as a podcast, you might also like to know that CDs are available to visually impaired members of the National Trust. They're distributed by the RNIB. If you know of anyone who is eligible and would like to receive one, please call the RNIB on 01733 375 370. Or you can write, enclosing the membership number, to Sales and Operations, RNIB, Midgate House, Midgate, Peterborough, PE11TN. And if you'd like more audio content from the Trust, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us for the next audio issue of National Trust magazine.